Hello. Good morning. Can y'all can y'all see me behind this? I don't know if I'm too short. Um, like Justin said, we're going through our core values at the church, and today we're going through hope of the gospel. So, right up here is what our elders wrote about this. You can find this on the website, and we'll just read through it real fast. It says. Part of our unique assignment is to prepare the body of Christ for the return of Jesus and establish hearts in the hope of the gospel. Like John the Baptist, we want to make ready for the Lord a people prepared and ultimately hasten the day of his coming kingdom. So my goal for us today is to be able to answer these questions. What's the return of Christ? How do we prepare? What's the hope of the gospel and how do we establish our hearts in it? These are kind of large questions, so we're going to move kind of quick at parts, and I hope you drank your coffee. I've got detailed notes here so we don't fall off in the vortex, but uh, my youngest prayed for me that I wouldn't mess up today, so I'm feeling good. All right. We talk a lot about the return of Christ, but if you're new here or maybe still getting your head around the message of the Bible, I want to make sure we don't skip past this. Most people are familiar with the first coming of Christ, at least in a cultural sense, because we celebrate it every December 25th. We have Jesus, fully God, fully man, born as a baby, grew to a man. He lived a sinless life. He spoke of a coming kingdom. He poured out his life on the cross and died in our place. He was raised from the dead, making forgiveness of sin possible so that we could be restored and live with God forever. The return of Christ is a little less emphasized in cultural Christianity, and I wish we had time to talk about why that might be, but not today. Essentially, the return of Christ is the belief that Jesus will one day come back to fully establish his kingdom on earth, and on that day, he will completely wipe out sin and death forever and ever, and the Bible pleads with us to be ready for that day. The idea is, were it not for the first coming and the sacrifice of Jesus, none of us would have hope in the second coming because we would still be among the sin and the death that will be eliminated. You might have heard Justin or other teachers talk about the use of shadows and types in the Bible. These are terms that describe people or events in biblical history that display God's heart on a small scale in order to point us to a person or event that will happen again on a larger, more meaningful scale. My kids' math program is like this. Rather than a linear mode, theirs is spiral-shaped, meaning that they will be introduced to a concept and then keep coming back around and layering on what they've learned so that by the time they read the word algebra in their textbook, they already are familiar with the concepts and have been using those tools without even knowing that's what they were doing. And the Bible is chock full of this style of teaching and preparing. God graciously layers concepts and realities that might otherwise be hard for us to grasp. So as we think about what it means to be a people prepared, I want us to return to Exodus, where we see a type of God's coming and a people's readiness so that we can better understand his future coming. We only have time for a brief flyby, but let's start with a little context and acknowledge that other than what we've read in books or seen in movies, we have no real experiential grid for the kind of generational generational oppression that Israel was under. And if we don't try to connect with the weight of what was going on, we won't feel the weight of the rescue. 
So I want you to actively work to get into another headspace. Children do this very easily. They call it imagination. But we can use it here to engage our hearts and emotions to help us connect with an event that happened a long time ago, but was one of the crowning moments for the people of Israel. All right. So in the early years, the Israelites were living the good life. They were farming the rich soil off the Nile. They were living under the shelter of the world's superpower at the time. So all was probably not bad. It's probably easy to forget that they were subjugated to Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. It wasn't long before what was essentially citizenship turned into slavery, and the Israelites were forced into labor, making bricks for the propping up of an idolatrous nation. This demand was a far cry from the blessing of work that God invited Adam and Eve into in the garden, where work was one of the joys of the human experience. By the, the authority of God, they have been created to rule and to reign with their fellow image bearers, not to be ruled by them and for them. So for both Israel and the Egyptians, this was not unto the order of God. The Egyptians' rule is described in the Bible as evil and oppressive. The types of word, words that surround Israel's bondage were bitter, ruthless, cruel, misery, suffering, and broken. The Hebrews were forced to push the limits of what was humanly possible in the name of control, power, and the worship of other gods. The Pharaoh of that time, unnerved by this growing Hebrew population, ordered the murder of any male-born child. Can you imagine a more precise way to weaken a people? It's unfathomable to dwell on what this must have been like. Your child taken from you, tossed into a river? Can you imagine the sounds of human agony? It's the culmination of these cries that reached the ear of God. Exodus 2.25 says God saw the Israelites and God knew. In Hebrew it says God yadah, which is a word often used in the context of marriage. It's a deep experiential knowledge. God saw and engaged with their guttural cries, and he was moved to action. Through Moses and Aaron, God sends ten plagues, before each giving the Pharaoh the choice to relent. But Pharaoh chooses to strengthen his will against the Lord, until finally the Lord begins to empower Pharaoh and hardens his heart even more. Plague after plague come down, each corresponding to the hierarchy of Egyptian gods, revealing Yahweh as the one true God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. The plagues also distinctly mirror a reversal in the seven-day creation narrative. Rather than acting in an instant, God slowly challenges the idolatrous worship and pushes the oppressors backwards through creation, providing ample opportunity to relent. But just before the final plague, in the midst of the increasing intensity, guess what God speaks to his people about? Of all things, a holiday. He doesn't wait until after the exodus to say, hey, remember what happened? Remember how I 
pulled you out of that, let's commemorate that. No, he's, he tells them beforehand. He says, this day, this month, it will be set apart and you will remember. And he prepares them for his coming by telling them what they need to do, involving the blood of a lamb and a door frame. You've got to go back and read this on your own because the detail that God goes into on this, considering the pandemonium that was around them, is astonishing. I'm reading it as a mother, knowing what it takes to get out the door with small children. And I get stressed, they get stressed, we can't find anybody's shoes, children start fighting, and in general, we all lose the big picture. But not God. He speaks calmly to his children in a way that paints a picture of their future. He lets them know, not only will you make it through this, but you will order your lives around this event and celebrate it. If you talked to a child, any child, at any length, you know the extent of their question asking, and you can hear God's fatherly tone anticipating the myriad of questions they might have. He doesn't just bark at everyone like I might. Get a lamb, use your brain. He walks them through every single detail, what they should be wearing, how and where to eat this lamb, how to consider how much they'll need for each person, what to do if your family is too small to justify a whole lamb, what kind of lamb will they need, what day to get the lamb, and thus how many days they're going to need to feed it, how to cook it, how not to cook it, what to do with the leftovers, and most importantly, what to do with the blood. He tells him, take a branch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that will be in your basin, and apply it to the top of the doorframe and the two side posts. This was to be a sign to the avenging Yahweh to pass over their home. They are to remain inside, but ready, and when morning comes, they will exit their doorways, marked with blood, and even pass through chaos waters as they follow God into new life. Not to disturb the men in the room, but bloody exit into, through water into life should remind us of something. The exodus is a picture of a birth canal. Jesus alludes to this when he talks to Nicodemus about being born again. It says, when the people heard their instructions, they bowed down low to the ground, and the Israelites went away and did exactly as the Lord commanded. And the Lord did come. he did what he said he would do. It happened around midnight. What was the angel of death for some was the God of liberation for others. For Israel, a picture of readiness was blood on the door. As they oriented their days around that coming, so we orient our days around his return. In the same way that the Israelites put the blood of a lamb on a door, we put the blood of Jesus over our hearts. Now, if we were to empty our brains of everything we knew about the Bible and jump into the story right here at this point, we would probably have some questions. We would wonder, who is this God? What does he have to do with the Israelites? Why do the Israelites trust this God? And did they not think that was weird with the whole lamb blood on the doorway thing? And we would probably wonder most of all, where is he leading them? What next? So this brings us to our second point in being a body prepared. 
Israel already knew the voice of God, and they already believed his promise. So when he said, I am coming, be prepared, they didn't hesitate to respond because their day-to-day reality fit into a larger context of a promise through Abraham. In the same way, our reality also fits into a context. We fit into a greater story of God. I'm a story-driven person, so maybe I'm overstepping here, but I think one of the greatest advantages to a believer, second to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is a firm grasp on the overarching redemptive narrative of the Bible. I remember watching one of the opening scenes of a movie I love. It's a brutal movie, and it displays the harshness of the great outdoors and even more so the harshness of human nature. It's set in the early 1800s, and there's a group of men trapping fur, and they are brutally ambushed. And the scene is done in one shot, panning through the chaos, so you feel like you are there. I remember I was so locked in. And I remember thinking, if you were to take me and plot me down in this scene in the movie, nothing in my life would translate. My plans, my goals, my to-do list... Everything would need to change if I was going to have a shot in thriving in this reality. I would need to become essentially a different kind of person. So my point is, our context matters. The context you find yourself in shapes who you become. For the believer, knowing our greater context grounds our faith and helps us become the kind of people who will flourish in the kind of kingdom God is establishing. As a church culture, as a church culture, I worry that we have shrunk the gospel down to Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Ask any child what's the gospel and that's what they will tell you because that's what we are teaching them. And that's great. It's the bedrock of our faith. It's the differentiator of our religion, and it's the most significant event in human history. However, knowing that phrase alone doesn't give us a lot of context. And I worry that part of the reason our young adults are going out into the world and abandoning their faith is because that's all we've armed them with. Like our imaginary questions regarding the Exodus, we need to have a grid for where we are in the biblical narrative, for who we are in the narrative. If we want to consider how this knowledge relates to salvation, it doesn't. It's not imperative to understand the whole narrative of the Bible to know that you need forgiveness and to embrace the rescue Jesus provides. But on a practical level, would it not support the infrastructure of our faith to know what it is we were saved into? Would it not be a beacon of light on dark nights to know a God who has an end in mind and is faithfully bringing us through? I ask this especially for the days when the kingdom does not feel like it's coming and certainly doesn't feel at hand. Those are the moments that what we have fed our faith matters and being able to stand on a story that is larger than our bad day or bad year, and stronger than the hardest moments that we might have to face. What does it mean to set our lives in the context of a larger story and live according to a greater reality? 
Maybe it means we bring a thoughtfulness to our lives that help us navigate questions like, what does Jesus dying on the cross have to do with my today? Not just my right standing, but like my to-do list. If God is in charge, why is there so much pain in my life? And how do I make sense of that? What are we here for, and how do I live a life well-lived? Answering those questions may mean we dive a little deeper into the Bible and ask further questions, like, what does it mean that in the beginning God ordered chaos? What do we make of the fact that God separated light from darkness, but didn't do away with darkness? What are the implications of being made in his image to also bring order to chaos by ruling and subduing creation? Do we acknowledge that there are spiritual beings who are against our status as image bearers? What does it mean that the first image bearers disobediently ate from the tree of knowledge called knowing good and evil? What does the tabernacle tabernacle tell us about God's commitment to dwelling with his people? What is God's plan to rule and reign with his people, not up in the sky, but here on solid ground, have to do with my today? We're not going to have complete understanding on this side of his return, but God has gone through great lengths to give us this miraculous and fascinating book and the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. At the very least, there are good questions to be asked. And half of good theology, in my opinion, is knowing how to sit with the right question. So this is what being prepared looks like. Blood on the door, familiarity with God's voice and his promises. In 2 Peter 3, Peter asks us, In light of this assured coming kingdom, what sort of people then must you be? And I think what he's saying is a prepared body is a preparing body. Not only are we prepared for his coming, we are preparing for his staying. From the beginning, God has had a vision. His plan was to make a place where he could dwell with his his people, a heaven on earth kind of place. In Genesis, he commissioned his image bearers with the exciting and fulfilling role of cultivating and subduing the earth. They were to walk with him, eat from the tree of life, and multiply the blessing he had given them. And in doing so, they would expand the boundaries of Eden out into the wilderness and enlarge God's dwelling place among them. Sounds rad to me. But we all know what happened. Things got a little off track. But God has not given up on his vision. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, we see God's commitment to dwelling with his people. From a garden to a tent to a temple to the hearts of his people, God's kingdom will ultimately settle as a heavenly city upon an earthy ground. So in light of this, we do not sit idly by with this myopic view that Jesus died for my sins, so I guess I just do whatever I want until heaven, or I guess i got to be a good person now because I believe in God and he's always watching me. Personally, I think those are two of the saddest lifestyles we can choose to be someone who believes in the forgiveness of sin but has no vision for the abundant life they were saved to. Today, we are image bearers called to make a place for him to dwell. We work inwardly by the power of his spirit and we move outwardly in the same manner. Seeing as this kind of placemaking is our call, 
ought we to know what kind of place he would have us make? Which things are we cultivating? What things are we subduing? From the beginning of our history with him, we see an ordered God. In fact, Proverbs 8 tells us that before creation and that let there be light moment, God first brought forth wisdom. That blew my Sunday school mind. In wisdom, God brings shalom, or peace, to chaos. First he separates, then he fills, and he orders things to grow after their own kind. And as the crown of his creation, God creates male and female. And he has, this, he has them continue in the same work of ordering and filling, multiplying and subduing. This kind of holy work is in our DNA. And it's why Acts 4.11 hits so hard. It says, this Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, has become the cornerstone. In other words, we, the builders, were supposed to partner with God and yet we rejected the cornerstone of the whole project. I want to bring it way down to earth, so I'm going to give you an example that's intentionally diminutive. I remember telling this to Jerry years ago, and I felt like he got me, so hopefully you will too. I was in the throes of young motherhood. I had three kids under four. Our house was pandemonium. There was lots of crying, lots of messes, lots of laundry, a gazillion dirty diapers. It seemed like our diapers were birthing diapers. <laughs> I was exhausted all the time and losing my patience more than I'd like to admit. And I was trying to figure out what did it mean to be an image bearer in the midst of all of this chaos. So one day, I moved a trash can because it dawned on my sleep-deprived brain that the location of this trash can made no sense. It was adding multiple steps to my day, remember all those dirty diapers, and so I moved it. And every time I threw something away after that, I thought, yes, this is so much better. And I remember thinking, this is placemaking. This small little act in subduing chaos that surrounded me. And in that moment, I was an image bearer. I was subduing and cultivating. I was making a place for a coming king. And it felt so good to a mom who was drowning in monotony. And I know what you must be thinking. This is a stretch. And I don't mean to worry any fundamentalists out there. I'm not saying that moving a trash can encompasses the whole of God's law or that moving a trash can can excuse you from fasting or evangelism or any other good work of a believer. I'm saying that the space between the activities that we have labeled strictly Christian, I am saying that all the space between can be also made unto the Lord and done in a way that creates space for a coming king. Believers in Jesus have actually been awakened by the Spirit and restored to the role of influencing the greater movement of God in the tiny little spheres that he's given us jurisdiction over. 
And don't hear me say order, as in organization only. I mean any act that brings forth flourishing. I'm going to read that part again because I feel like it's important for us. Believers in Jesus have been actually awakened by the Spirit and restored to the role of influencing the greater movement of God and the tiny spheres he's given us jurisdiction. When you see your life like that, you start to see the possibility for beauty everywhere. And we begin to live our eternal calling, bridging the now but not yet of the kingdom. Depression, I have been told, is the feeling of not being able to influence what's around you. And I'm told that among our young adults especially, it's an epidemic. What a far cry that experience is from what the Spirit wants to enliven us to do. When we don't see our Christian activity as moments of off and on, but a calling that fills and elevates even our most, our most mundane corners of life, then we can begin to fathom with greater wisdom the call to seek the lost, to care for the orphan and the widow, and to bring justice to the weak. And we actually have a message to share that ignites and empowers the broken. You are an image bearer. And we get to tell them the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand and Jesus has made a way for you. Come and prepare a way for him. This is the good news. That despite the sin and brokenness of humanity, God still wants to dwell with his people. And because of the death and resurrection of his son, the spirit of God works in us to make that possible. We were broken. He made us whole. We were enemies, now reconciled. We were drowning in a sea of never-ending toil and monotony, and God restored our purpose. We were blind, but the Spirit has given us eyes to see a kingdom that is here in part, but coming in full. Like in Exodus, his return will be experienced in one of two ways. And the tipping point of that experience comes down to our relationship with Jesus. He's the door by which we enter. He's the lamb by which we receive life. He's the king to which every knee will bow. Matt, you can go ahead and come up. Almost done here. So how do we establish our hearts in the gospel? It's one thing to acknowledge the gospel with our minds, and it's another to establish our hearts in it. First and foremost, the Bible says before we believed in Christ, we were dead. Dead people don't have a heart to establish. Belief in Christ is to be made alive. And the Bible compares an established heart to a tree planted by a river whose leaves do not wither. Establishing our heart is active. It looks like gardening. Jesus teaches us that our hearts are like types of ground, rocky paths, shallow dirt, or deep, rich soil. And like in gardening, 
there's an extent to which we cannot will a seed to grow, but we do bear the responsibility of tending the garden. And to this end, the Bible says God has given you every single gift in the heavenly places to aid you in that pursuit. Part of the effects of sin is that we have to relearn how to enjoy tending a garden. All we know of work is hurry up, let's get it done. But it's not so with the Lord and it's not so with your calling. I hope that makes sense what I'm saying. The hope of the gospel is not that the kingdom is far off and if we can just hang in there long enough, we'll make it. No, we are being transformed to see and operate in the beautiful ways of the kingdom right now. And when it comes to our spirit, there's a general principle that you will reap what you sow and you sow what you love. And wisdom pleads with us, examine your loves. What we love will bear fruit in our life, be it sweet or be it bitter. And this is where it gets a little personal because I can't make you love something and neither could you me. But I can tell you the hope of the gospel, which is that God is good and he's establishing a kingdom of peace where believers in Jesus will be made whole and all that angst that we feel in our bones that we either deny or appease with all the wrong things, all of that angst will be gone. Can you fathom what that will feel like? It almost doesn't even make sense to me. I can't fathom being a mother without worry. They kind of go hand in hand. Sin and death will utterly be wiped away. And this will all take place on a renewed earth, our beloved home, and renewed bodies that are not bent toward evil. So with God's hand over ours, we embrace our Genesis call to work the garden. And we cultivate and we subdue our very own hearts. We pull out weeds, we shelter baby seedlings, we humble ourselves and invite others in and show them the places that, man, for whatever reason, are bearing bitter fruit. Establishing our hearts is about growth. Sanctification is a churchy word. We work to inspire our appetites. We align them with what is good, beautiful, and true. And we order our loves and seek to wade out in the deep waters of knowing him. And little by little, we learn to love the light. And for those of you who are in the trenches of life and faithfully following Jesus in the midst of real hardship, be reminded that he hears your cry and he is coming for you. This is our hope. This is our God. May we establish our hearts and prepare his way.